I learned from my mother. She taught me never let anyone quantify or determine your value or your worth. And I wasn't going to let someone else tell me what my worth was. And so that really was the catalyst on why I started my own firm. Hello and welcome to The Daily Helping with Dr. Richard Schuster. Food for the brain, knowledge from the experts, tools to win at life. I'm your host, Dr. Richard. Whoever you are, wherever you're from, and whatever you do, this is the show that is going to help you become the best version of yourself. Each episode, you will hear from some of the most amazing, talented, and successful people on the planet who followed their passions and strive to help others. Join our movement to get a million people each day to commit acts of kindness for others. Together, we're going to make the world a better place. Are you ready? Because it's time for your daily helping. Thanks for tuning into this episode of the Daily Helping Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Richard, and I am so excited to share today's guest with you. Welcome to the show, Marissa Levin, a 25-year entrepreneur, speaker, and globally recognized growth strategist. Marissa's lifetime legacy mission is to educate, equip, and empower 100 million entrepreneurs and leaders with the skill sets and mindsets they need to reach their greatest potential. She's the author of the number one best-selling book, Built to Scale, How Companies Create Breakthrough Growth through exceptional advisory boards. And we're going to talk about that. But using her patented scale model, her organization has helped CEOs select and implement highly effective advisory boards, which is an essential strategy for any business looking to grow exponentially. She's also the author of My Company Rocks, Eight Secrets to a Growth-Driven Culture and a Contributing Author to You at Work, Unlocking Human Potential in the Workplace. Finally, Marissa is a leadership columnist for Inc. Magazine. Throughout her 25-year entrepreneurial journey, Marissa has been recognized as a global influencer and trailblazer. She was named as the 2009, 10, and 11 Smart CEO, Smart 100 participant by Smart CEO Magazine, which recognizes top 100 CEOs. There's many other accolades and things that we can talk about. We're going to get into those. But Marissa, welcome to the show. It is so great to have you here on The Daily Helping. Thank you. I'm so happy to be here. I love your work. I appreciate that. And I know that everybody listening to this is going to take a lot from your work. And so, as you know, when I dive into these stories, I love to find out people's whys. What was it that started them on that entrepreneurial journey? Because it so much shapes people's hows and what. So let's talk about for you, what was it that began you on the path that you're on today? So, you know, I don't even know if uh, you and I have shared that, uh, if we've talked about that, Dr. Richard. The, um, the thing that really inspired me to start my own company was that I worked for a man that didn't value me. So I had worked for a consulting firm after college and I had made him a lot of money and brought him a lot of value. And I acquired my, my master's degree in organizational development and instructional system design. And I it was time to do my annual review and I went in and I had had like a mentor help me with a whole business plan on what my value was in his business. And I presented it and he told me I'd never be worth more than $34,000 to his firm. Mm. So I learned from my mother. She taught me never let anyone quantify or determine your value or your worth. And I wasn't going to let someone else tell me what my worth was. And so that really was the catalyst on why I started my own firm. 
So take us through that. And, and that's so powerful. And, and I think so many people listening to this, that resonates with where we're told by a superior, this is essentially the value you bring X. And that's all you're ever going to be. And you saw your worth is so much more. So take us through that first company you launched. So after he uh, told me that, that you know, in his opinion, I wasn't going to be worth more than $34,000, I went home and uh, to my husband and I said, look, you know, if I stay there, I'm never going to make more than $34,000. He's never going to see me as worth anything more than $34,000. And I know that I'm worth a lot more. So I want to start my own company. And this was going back you know, 20, over 25 years ago. And this was long before LinkedIn and long before you could incorporate a company online through LegalZoom. You know, it was a very arduous um, multi-step process that took a lot of time. And I just knew that if I was going to work for someone that was going to value me, the person who that was going to be the most would be me. And so I came up with the name of a company. We went out to dinner that night and we were sitting in an Italian restaurant and we literally mapped out a very rudimentary business plan in terms of what I was going to do with my first company, why I was going to do it, what I stood for, who I was going to serve and how I was going to connect with my customers. And I created a business plan on a paper uh, tablecloth. And that's how I launched my first company. And then I sent down my incorporation documents to the state of Virginia in Richmond, filed for incorporation of my company name. And uh, that's how I launched Right away, I'm thinking of how different things are today. That mm-hmm. you know, we will come up with a name for a company now, and then we'll Google it on our phones, and mm-hmm. somebody has the domain, and we swear, and we try and find the next company. So, so different. So, t- take us through though. You've launched the company, you filed. Talk to us about the work you were doing in that organization. Yeah, so so different. So, um, as I explained, my master's degree was in organizational de- development and human resources with a focus on instructional systems design. So my first company, which as I grew it, I pivoted it at seven different times in response to market shifts. So that could be a whole podcast on the importance of staying relevant and being able to pivot and let go of your vision in order to remain relevant in the marketplace. But when I launched it, the field of training and development and instructional design was completely classroom-based. This was before online learning and e-learning was an application for the internet. There was no e-learning and web-based training and mobile-based training. The only place that people did training was in the classroom. That was it. There were no other options. So when I launched the company, that's what we did. We developed uh, user's guides, instructor guides, online help system guides, and we designed and developed uh, materials for instructor-led training. Now, that's how we started. And then it was, uh, I guess, sometime in the late 90s that John Chamber, the CEO at the time of Cisco, announced that e-learning would be the quote-unquote killer application of the internet. And literally overnight, my market shifted and I had to change my entire business structure and model or I would have gone out of business. So overnight, we had to become an e-learning firm because the pendulum literally swung based on his his evangelism, it swung from all classroom-based training to e-learning. And then ultimately, the market corrected and it came back and really blended learning You know, for so many reasons is why training and 
you know, development really the optimal mark, the optimal solutions are usually blended learning solutions. But overnight, I had to pivot my entire business model and I had to hire different people and I had to create a different vision. And if I was going to stay in business and stay in the training space, I had to become what the market wanted. So that was my first shift after we launched. It's interesting too. I, I think about when Steve Jobs was on stage back in 2007 and, and debuted the iPhone and how radically the impact of that came into the business world and how quickly things have changed in just a matter of really months after that thing came out. So it makes a lot of sense. And so then as you were growing your business, talk to us about the next big shift for you. Sure. So in order to become what the market needed and still stay true to who we were, we had to become a web-based training company. And that required me to hire talent like um, graphic designers and programmers and creatives. And so by doing that, that allowed us to expand our offerings to go into the fields of web design, marketing, things of that nature, still staying true to our mission to be able to educate and train organizations to be the most competitive that they could be. But we were able to do so by by expanding our offerings. So that was our second shift that we uh, expanded beyond just being a training and development firm. And we went into the area of multimedia development, website development, and marketing communications. And that allowed us to go into our clients. And you know, back then, part, organizational functions were extremely siloed. And not only were they siloed, there was actually uh, animosity and friction between sales and marketing. Now today, sales and marketing really are kind of like two peas in a pod. They're very integrated. They work well together. But a long time ago, it used to be that sales and marketing functions inside a company actually didn't even talk to each other. They didn't work together. They didn't talk to each other. They considered each other kind of like the enemy. And so we had an opportunity since we were providing training to the sales team and we were supporting the marketing and development group, we actually had the opportunity to bridge those gaps and create conversations that weren't going on yet. So it was really exciting for us to be able to take all of our capabilities and create bridges inside companies where there once were barriers. And that was something that we did. So that was a second shift. And then another shift that we ended up uh, experiencing was when we decided we were going to go into the government space, we went after a very large contract uh, for the government after a very long strategic analysis and making sure that we were prepared. And that brought us into the human capital space because we were awarded a very large comprehensive government contract that included human capital as well. So that was a third shift that we went to. So these are all things that you have to do when you grow a company is consistently remain relevant while staying true to your core values and your mission. I love that. And so just for the timeline here, when you won that government contract, what, what year was that? Let's see. Uh, my younger son was in kindergarten. I remember <laughs> I was right. volunteering in his classroom when we got the notice. Uh, and so I think that was 2005. Okay. So we're, we're, we're still like in a pre-smartphone world that the, the Facebook was emerging, but didn't have in 2005 the, the foothold that it did today. Sales and marketing, as you said, we're kind of starting to learn how to like each other. So, you know, you're really talking about doing these things before the the revolution of the the confluence 
smartphones with social media. 100%. Yeah, there was. In fact, it's funny you bring up social media because I remember when Facebook came on the scene and I remember, and even like the very early days of LinkedIn, as a CEO, I remember vividly thinking to myself, this is going to change everything because traditional organizations are extremely hierarchical. The CEO in the traditional organization owned all messaging. Whatever went out about the company, the CEO directed. Other employees really didn't have a voice about what was happening inside the company. And when social media came on the horizon, and all of a sudden, everybody could make a LinkedIn page, and everybody had Facebook, and this was before Glassdoor and Yelp and Google reviews. This is when social media just came on the horizon. I saw what was coming and I said, this is going to flatten the organization because everybody in the company is going to have a voice. And that's exactly what happened. I think that's so profound. And in, in, in a way, it's kind of like the, the old radio free things from you know, the late 90s. Like once, once people started being able to get a voice out there, Mm-hmm. It changed communication forever. And so as you were doing your work, and, and this was your first company with information experts, and now yeah. you're recognizing that there's another sea change mm-hmm. coming. Take take us through what happened next. I, I just, you know, I just remembered that. And I had always been a leader that, uh, you know, really stressed and strived for collaboration and really transparent communication. It's just, you know, as you've gotten to know me, I mean, it's just how I operate in the world. I'm all about connection and collaboration and communication. And I, and I just remember seeing what was happening that there were not going to be any more dictatorial cultures where, you know, every message that went out had to get cleared by the CEO. And for those leaders that, you know, thought they were, you know, that had like this false impression or assumption or fantasy that they were going to be able to control what their employees actually said and did online, they were in for a rude awakening. You know, like that's kind of where things were when social media first hit the workplace, that these companies would put in these really onerous processes about, you may not post about the company and if you're posting, you have to use this language. Like they tried to control and regulate everything that their employees were saying and doing online. And you just can't do that. You know, the platforms were there. You, you, it, it was a matter of saying, get on board with it. And how about creating a culture that you, that you want people to be proud to talk about? rather than trying to control what your employees are doing and saying. It's so interesting, Marissa, because one of the things that, that I think about a lot, and one of, one of the guests we had on our show a couple of years ago, I, I know a favorite of yours as well, Bob Berg, the go-giver, mm-hmm. who was really yeah. one of the first guys out there talking about purpose-driven culture. But what you're describing, you're talking about timing. So what you're talking about, around this time and, and the, the subsequent next five, 10 years is when millennials really started entering the corporate space, number yeah. one. Mm-hmm. And, and number two, then, you know, millennials were the group that was really focused on wanting to have 
wanting to work at a place where they were making an impact. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. so now then we have this flattening of communication. And I think those three things did really play with each other. And that's when we started having some of these radical shifts in these organizations' missions. So you tease this, but I want to take a really deep dive in this because I know this is something that you're known for all over the world. The power of community, the importance mm-hmm. of building a community and organization. So let's spend some time there, Marissa. Talk to us about why building community and organizations are so key critical and then walk us through some some basic key actionable strategies that people can utilize to do that. Great. I love this topic. And I and I want to back up that it isn't even just about the power of communities in organizations. It's about the power of communities in your life. And I've inherently just always, you know, I'm a connector, like I'm a belonger. I I need to feel that I belong. You know, I I I belong to different org- so many different organizations, and I want to go in there and I want to contribute and I want to connect and I want to be able to help those other members. And uh, Ted Leonsis, um, who is obviously very very famous and you know one of our stars here in the Washington D.C. area, he is one of the co-founders of America Online with Steve Cates. He owns. Um, the Washington Capitals. He owns the Washington Wizards. I mean, he's you know he's one of our icons here in Washington D.C. And he has he published a book. Oh my gosh, it had to be I don't know fifteen years ago. Maybe it was that long. And it was basically the business of success. And he had um, several principles in there. And one of them that he talked about was about community and how one of the most important factors for a successful life is to belong to multiple communities and not really put all of your eggs in one basket because that gives you it gives you accessibility and uh, to multiple perspectives and multiple types of people and it makes you a very multi-layered you know uh, complex person in terms of how we connect with others rather than just seeking out exactly those people who mirror us, right? Who are just like us. And I actually applied this to my parenting. I remember when we, when I got a copy of the book and our kids were little, I, and they're 19 and 22 now, I remember talking with them and saying and stressing to them and making sure that they were part of multiple communities. So it wasn't just the kids that they went to you know, school with. And it was the kids in our synagogue and it was the kids on their teams and it was the kids they went to camp with and it was different types of interest and nurturing and cultivating all of those communities rather than being dependent on one single community. And that ended up really serving them well in high school when they both had some hiccups with their high school communities and they had so many other communities to fall back on to know what their identity was, right? Because a lot of our high school students today, they, they take a very myopic view of life. And so if they have a difficult high school experience, they put all of their weight on the opinions of people who really don't matter in the scheme of things, but that's the only, they're the only people in their life. And if they don't belong to multiple communities, they don't have perspective that those people really don't matter. Does that make sense? It makes total sense. And, and yeah. so as we're thinking about that, Let's apply that to the work you're doing in corporate settings with communities. Right, so- right. So I translated that, and I, you know, just naturally, I am a member of so many different communities. 
entrepreneurial organizational communities and leadership communities and a women's co-working space. And none of these have anything to do with one another. And I'm engaged and ingrained in all of them. And what I found when I was growing information experts is one of the best things that I ever did, the smartest things I ever did was I built an advisory board so that I had hand-selected advisors that knew exactly what was going on with my business and I would bring them together. And the power of multiple minds, that creates basically another mind. And that's what happens when you bring really smart people together. And that's what we did with an advisory board. And I'm also a member of a mastermind. And so I'm constantly surrounding myself with other leaders and and business owners, uh, people who have gone through so much of what I have gone through or have experienced things that I don't want to experience and they can teach me from their mistakes or people who have found how to do something I'm trying to do. It's just always so important to surround yourself with other people and get out of your own head about what you're doing. Channeling Napoleon Hill here a little bit. But I am, I am. It, it, I absolutely love Napoleon Hill. Yes. It's absolutely on point. And, and yeah. so let's talk a little bit about your best-selling book, Built to Scale, How Companies Create Breakthrough Growth Using Exceptional Advisory Boards. So talk to us about the your scale model, because I know that that's something that, that you've created and that has made such a huge difference for organizations everywhere. Sure. I have a copy of it. You want to see it? Yeah, hold it up. <laughs> so, so fun. This is scale, Built to Scale. Yes. So uh, the scale model, which is patented and trademarked, Stand for select, compensate, associate, leverage, evaluate, evolve, and exit. So it's a five-phase model that leads a business owner through the process of how to strategically and intentionally select the advisors that they need around them according to what we call the holes and goals of their organization. So it's being very intentional. What do I need for the next six months, 12 months, two years? Who do I need around me? And looking at not only the skill sets, but the mindset, as well as the cultural um, cultural compatibility, risk tolerance or aversion compatibility, availability, how much you want them to be ingained, ingrained and engaged in your organization versus only working with the C-level. We have a, you know over a dozen different uh, criteria that we apply when we look at advisors to determine if they actually meet our needs for being on an advisory board or even just being an informal advisor. And I imagine that this is something that somebody could use whether they are a solopreneur and just surrounding themselves with advisors to help them grow their business or whether they are running a large-scale organization. So uh, let's let's take a quick dive into the acronym because we love acronyms on The Daily Helping. So the S in scale is SELECT, correct? The S is SELECT. Okay. So take us through a little bit about SELECT. So uh, the first thing that you do is you really start a SWOT analysis, strengths, weaknesses, opportunities, and threats, as it relates to what you need from your advisory board, not your entire organization. And so we lead our clients through that process to, again, figure out what the holes and goals are of your organization. And that's who you want to have around the table. An advisory board is not an initiative that you take on to put a fire out. It's a strategic initiative to ensure for long-term growth. There's a difference. So if you're having a massive problem in your company, 
that's not the time to put in an advisory board. You have to be super intentional and strategic about your board, figuring out who you need around the table. And you want to make sure that you've got your values, mission, vision, competitive analysis, target customer profile, all of that done so that you can create a board search document before you go ahead and you pick and pick your advisors. So that the select phase is that's the single most important part of this process. And I have a quote in my book by Plato that says the beginning is the most important part of the work. And that's what that means. You have to do the select part first before you go ahead and ask anyone to be on your board. That makes sense. And and, and so take us through the C. So the, the C is compensate. And there are lots of different ways to compensate. If you're going to have an advisor of any kind, you need to show that you want to put some skin in the game so that number one, you believe in what you are doing um, and in your own company and in your own leadership, but also that you value them. And we're not talking about something that is prohibitive. Most advisory board members, these are not boards of directors, but advisory boards, most people who serve as advisors are doing it not necessarily to make a ton of money, but because they believe in the leader, they believe in the mission of the company, they want to stay relevant and connected, they want to give back, they've had a successful career, probably with some bumps along the way, and they want to help others. So we're not talking about you know a prohibitive check that you have to write, but just something that reflects that you are appreciative of their value and that you know their worth and that you are willing to put some skin on the game to make an investment in your own advisory team. So lots of ways you can do it, like cash, trade, stock, lots of different ways you can do it. That was going to be my question. So for somebody who's starting up a company and maybe doesn't have the equity, you're saying give up some stock or some some ways to incentivize somebody for being that advisor. So in the book, I go over that and I interviewed an expert. Most people, when they start a business, they think about what their business is worth at the time, right? So it might not seem like a big deal to give 5% of nothing to someone. What you have to be careful is that as your business grows, if you've given away a lot of your business, that can be a problem. So what our experts that we interviewed recommended is that if you are going to give away stock, and they don't recommend it, but if you are going to do that, it's one half to one quarter of 1% per advisor initially, making sure that you have a, a, restricted, a restricted stock agreement in place where you can buy back the stock basically for a penny. So the event that you roll off an advisor, you don't have someone walking around out there that owns any of your stock. Because down the road, if you wanted to have a liquidity event and you wanted to sell, you could actually get that could actually derail you if you have anyone out there that even has like one half of a percent. Interesting. That's great advice. That's great advice. That's all in the book. Okay. And and let's... uh, We're we're working our way through our letters here. How about the A in scale? The A stands for associate. So how do you associate your advisors into your your company? So there's two uh, components to this. It's a two-legged stool if you want to, you know, or two-pronged fork. There is the legal aspect where you want to make sure that You've got all the legal documents in place, like non-competes, um, non-solicitation, um, you know the uh, NDAs. You know the board agreement is signed. You want to make sure that those are all done, and all of those are actually in the templates in the book. They're all legally done, you know, by a law firm, and those are all in the book for people who buy the book. 
Uh, and then you've got the process to associate the board and integrate the board into your company. And depending on the size of your company, you know, if you've got employees, then you've got to have a pretty strong communications and change management system in place so that people aren't suspicious. If it's just you and you only have you or a couple of people, it's not really a big deal. But for companies that have a lot of employees, they really need to be crystal clear with the rest of their company on what they're doing because employees have very active imaginations and they will create their own stories if they're not told the truth. Makes sense. And how about the L, which is leverage? To leverage. In the book, there are over 70 ways on how to leverage your board. There's a lot of creative ways on how to leverage your board from negotiating leases um, to uh, helping you find resources to helping you understand how to write certain letters to different procurement officials. We leveraged our advisors for that when we were doing government work. How to run an RFP process if you want to hire a company like that does accounting or legal or IT that you know you could have your your advisors run that process. There's so many different ways. There's obviously business development. There's so many different ways that you can leverage your advisory board. And so that's talked about in there. I love it. And then lastly, let, let's hit up the E, which is evaluate. Evaluate, evolve, and exit. So the advisory board is a fluid dynamic entity. And we always advise our clients to just have a one-year agreement in place, which can be revisited at the time to decide if both parties think that it, it's wise to continue the arrangement and you know the relationship. So that's what the evaluate piece is for, knowing that boards should be constantly evolving. If you've done it right, you're probably going to outgrow a couple of your advisors, which is okay. And when that happens, you want to make sure that you exit them graciously and gracefully, following the same type of protocol and standard that you might have with an exit interview when you, you know, release an employee. Perfect. And tell us where people can get that book. So the book's on Amazon, but we have a website, uh, which is www.built2scale.info. So that's B-U-I-L-T-T-O-S-C-A-L-E dot info. Built to scale, all spelled out, dot info. And uh, on our website, Successful Culture International, there is a video actually on the YouTube channel of Successful Culture International. There is a five-minute tutorial on the whole scale model and how you can implement that. Very, very cool. And before we wrap up, I wanted to talk a little bit about your podcast, which has gained a lot of traction and is really exciting. So share with everybody listening to this, the name of your show, where we can find it and all that good stuff. So we have launched uh, the Culture Podcast and it is the leading destination, conversation destination uh, on all of the podcast platforms to talk about what it means to create a great place to work. So it is meant to be relevant for both the employer and the employee. We are addressing both sides of it. And we are also talking about provocative issues, about things that are happening in society outside of the organization that are now impacting the corporate culture and how leaders can most effectively respond to continue creating safe places to work for their people. I love it. Absolutely love it. Marissa, this has been so informative. I knew that it would be. As you know, I wrap up every episode by asking my guests a single question. That is, what is your biggest helping? The single most important piece of information you'd like somebody to walk away with after hearing our conversation today? Um, so, well, for, in, for leaders, never underestimate 
the uh, influence that you have on the people that work for you. And then for employees to know that you have a voice in your own future and your out, your own outcome and to always take responsibility for that. So that's what I would want people to walk away with. If people go to our website, successfulculture.com, we would love to have them sign up for our, uh, our blog, our, our e-zine that we send out um, that has very actionable information for leaders. And uh, they can also sign up for our white paper on the various external factors that happen called Shifts Happen. And it guides leaders through the strategies to make sure that their cultures are protected. Shifts happen. I love that. So we'll have links to that for those of you in the car at the gym. We've got you covered. Everything Marissa Levin will be in the Daily Helping app as well as at thedailyhelping.com for her show notes. Marissa, this has been fantastic. Thanks so much for coming on the show today. My pleasure. It's been an honor. Thank you for the work that you do. Absolutely. Thank you for that. And thanks to each and every one of you who chose to listen to this episode. If you like what you heard, go subscribe to us on iTunes and leave us a five-star review because that's what helps other people find the podcast. But most importantly, go out there today and do something nice for someone else, even if you don't know who they are, and post in your social media feeds using the hashtag MyDailyHelping because the happiest people are those that help others.